Hello and welcome to this IFG Live event on Getting Cities to Net Zero. My name is Tom Sass. I'm an Associate Director at the Institute for Government and I lead our work on Net Zero. So cities are going to have a critical role in the UK's transition to Net Zero. Um, as less densely populated areas, they can arguably lead the transition in many areas, whether that's housing uh, or transport. Um, before the pandemic, many cities had already declared climate emergencies and set ambitious uh, climate targets and net zero targets, although there was much discussion of whether they had the powers and resources that they might need to meet those targets. Uh, you may have seen at the Conservative Party conference last week that Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, was among those submitting a sort of levelling up bid focused on, on largely on net zero of what he might need to deliver that locally. In the last 18 months, of course, there's been a whole series of changes in urban areas that have big implications for this transition, whether that's more walking and cycling, indeed more driving. Um, we're yet to see how sticky some of those behavioural shifts prove, but there is a big opportunity as we come out of the pandemic to accelerate some of those changes towards uh, the green transition. Uh, still, getting cities to net zero is not going to be an easy proposition. So what approaches from local leaders will be needed? Um, what does central government need to do to enable those local areas to drive this transition? And what are the areas that um, we can get on with making progress in now? I've got a really great panel to discuss all of that. Um, Baroness Blake of Leeds uh, is shadow spokesperson for housing communities and local government in the Lords uh, and a former leader of Leeds City Council. Uh, she has extensive experience leading this type of work in, in local government. Leeds has been a real exemplar on this and is now drawing on that um, in, in some of the work that she's doing in the Lords. Christopher Hammond uh, is Network Membership Director at UK100. Uh, UK100 do a lot of convening work um, on this and recently put out an interesting report working with Metro mayors calling for some powers to be devolved on net zero. Uh, and Krista was formerly the leader of Southampton City Council. Professor Hayley Fowler is Professor of Climate Change Impacts in the School of Engineering at Newcastle University, and she's also co-chair of Newcastle's Net Zero Task Force. Again, some of you may know that Newcastle's got a lot of interesting things going on uh, on Net Zero, so really interested to hear from Hayley on that. Uh, and Steve Turner is Director of Devolved and Local Government at the Connected Places Catapult. Steve's got 25 years in the public and private sector, uh, including leading Manchester City Council's Smart Cities programme. So I'm gonna start by asking my panel uh, a few questions and having a bit of discussion. We'll then have about half an hour for questions from all of you. Um, a few housekeeping notes. So this is uh, live and on the record, of course. Um, the recording will be on our website uh, tomorrow. Please do start sending your questions in now. Um, as I say, we'll get to those in the second half. If you can keep the questions short, um, we don't really want, want long statements. Um, say who you are and, and where you're from. And please do upvote uh, other people's questions that you like and would like to be asked. That will make us it easier for us to get to them. We will be live tweeting the event from the account at IFG events and using the hashtag IFG net zero please do tweet along uh, if you would like to join that discussion online. Uh, and we would like to thank Gowling WLG, the law firm, uh, for sponsoring event, sponsoring this event. 
Uh, and before coming to the discussion, I'm going to hand over to Giles Clifford, a partner at Gowling, for some opening remarks. Tom, thanks very much indeed, and, and thanks to everyone on our panel. Um, I'm, as Thomas said, uh, Giles Clifford, a partner at Gowling WLG. Um, we're a global law firm in cities around the world and two major cities in the UK, Birmingham and London. Uh, and this is something I'm absolutely delighted to be engaged in and supporting as a firm because it sits right at the hub of a huge amount of the work we do. We're, we're very active in public sector, uh, with a public sector client base. We do a lot of contracting in infrastructure. We've got a very large real estate practice uh, and a tech practice. And all of those things come together in this uh, quest for uh, the zero carbon city uh, in, in actually making things happen. I personally have worked for TFL and London Underground for, as clients for, for many, many years. And I know that through the engagement with them, um, we're, we're right at the heart of making change happen. And that's where we are, and that's what I'm really interested about hearing today, is actually how we move from sound bites of large and impressive percentages of things that are going to happen n years from now to actually getting stuff done on the ground that makes a real difference. And I'm conscious that the law, although for many, lucky folk, it's a, it's a necessary evil that you don't need to spend too much time dealing with, and it can often be a hindrance is actually also part of the delivery mechanism for policy through tax, contracting, governance, regulation, um, often actually as a tool, a blocking tool if we're not careful, but interestingly now being used to enforce corporate governance in a way that is forcing companies, for example, to change. So we're personally involved. What I think the massive challenge that I'd like to hear more about today is, is just how we move from this being something that those who know what should be happening talk about them amongst themselves and uh, formulate long games, how we turn that into something that is just a no-brainer for everyone in this country. Not many policies, successful policies, ever have the word zero in them. It's ambitious, it's crucial, and it has that zero word in it. And what it means is that we've got to make sure that for everyone in this country, everyone in our country's cities and the rural environment as well, the, the zero carbon choice becomes the obvious one. It becomes the easy one. When you've got to worry about getting the kids to school and paying the mortgage, you're not going to be focusing on the longer term zero. You'll be focusing on the, on the local issues. So what I hope we're going to hear, and I would love to love to be part of implementing, is getting that reality of a zero carbon world actually to happen, not by 2030 or 2050, but starting today or tomorrow. Um, and the city is obviously a crucial administrative unit and getting it to be able to work in delivering that is going to be a vital part of that game. So I very much look forward to hearing from the panel. Thank you very much for, for allowing me a few words, and I'm delighted to be uh, supporting this event on behalf of our firm. Giles, thank you. And uh, I definitely hear the call on, on sort of focusing the conversation on delivery. That's definitely where we're heading. 
Christopher, I'm, I'm going to come to you first. Um, your organisation does a lot of work with many different cities. Why does the role of cities in reaching net zero matter? Thank you, Tom. So it matters because the role of local authorities is absolutely essential if we want to deliver net zero. With around half of the emissions cuts that are going to be required, they need to be taken, decisions need to be taken at a very local level. And absolutely agree uh, with what we've just heard. And entering into COP26, we're going to have a lot more of the policy frameworks hopefully in place. The government has said that they'll be announcing those in the run up to COP. And we're going to be moving away from the sound bites into that delivery. And the good news is, is that cities um, have demonstrated time and time again and local authorities up and down the country that they can deliver and that they can deliver with a lot of uncertainty, operating uh, with not all of the facts available, not all of the technologies there. And if you think about what happened during the pandemic, local authorities showed that they could mobilise, work across boundaries of the public sector and the private sector, continue to deliver services and get funding out of the door. And in many cases, they had to create new services in a matter of days as opposed to months um, or, or years, which has been the, the, the record in the past. But to deliver that huge system change that's going to be needed, local authorities and cities are going to need more powers and they're going to need that greater certainty from government and they're going to need government to help them enable the work that they're already doing whether that's decarbonizing their own operations usually decades ahead of the government target but empowering them to use that place-based leadership so that they can go out to the businesses, the charities, the organisations and convince the public about the behaviour changes that are going to be needed. There are so many opportunities for cities in this sphere. It's going to be a huge boost to uh, economic strategies as we move from niche ideas into mainstreaming a lot of delivery. But there is going to be a huge amount of challenges. Some we've identified in our PowerShift report, which is available on our website, which lists some of the barriers and but also some of the opportunities. Um, but we need to think about the skills and the retraining and using this as central to cities economic recovery, leveling up. I know we're going to be talking about that later um, in the coming months and years ahead. It has to be led by cities. It has to be absolutely entwined in the day to day of everything that they're doing and it's delivering greener, fairer and safer communities up and down this country. So we hear this point quite a lot about cities needing more powers or, or local areas needing more powers. Which specific powers do, do they need? Because we, we've got this quite sort of messy devolution framework in the UK, different deals with different regions. What are the, the main ones that you think sort of need to be handed down? I think we need to look at what the funding mechanisms are. Uh, so we've got this, this bizarre situation where there is a pot of money which is usually available and we're having to compete against different authorities, different cities are competing for the same pot. We need to have a better mechanism that's not just uh, competing for pilot projects, but actually that we're talking about moving from that niche into absolutely mainstreaming some of these uh, projects. So for example, just on buses, 
we need to move to a place where we are operating zero carbon bus fleets across the country. We don't want pilots in a, a city over here, you know, something that's happening in Coventry. So a better funding mechanism would be a good start to really galvanise and get this momentum behind some of these projects that we know just need to happen. So are you thinking a, sort of a more of a grant type approach from central government or potentially revenue raising powers sort of at the local level? Well, the revenue uh, revenue raising powers would be a really important step. So there's been a huge amount of hollowing out of the capacity in local authorities over the last decade, which um, is I think political consensus probably went too far. You've got the challenges around social care and, uh, you know, which and adult social care has been a big discussion point recently. So giving councils the autonomy and the ability to raise their own revenue through a variety of different tools, but also to have that revenue support uh, if we're looking at complete systems change, we need that certainty for local authorities to be able to plan big projects that are going to take decades in some cases to get off the ground and moving and delivering. Brilliant. Thanks, Chris. That, that sets the context for this really well. Baroness Blake, I want to come to you. Um, how did Leeds approach this uh, green transition during your time there? Um, thank you and thank you for inviting me onto this really important um, Conversation and um, I, do, I just want to say by start by saying to Giles that we would never, uh, never, ever underestimate the importance of lawyers in this space. To be honest with you, <laughs> um, the uh, the threat of litigation in in this space is very real, and uh, we we need to be ahead of the curve on that. Um, so just reflecting back on my time in local government, I sort of first became a councillor not very long after Rio. And if you remember the strap line from that, the Think Global Act Local, and I think that is still holds in such um, such an importance. Um, talking to members of our communities and people out there, they find the whole debate quite daunting and just on such an enormous scale. And that much heard sort of um, um, spoken response, well, what can I do? Anything I do is so minimal and it's really how we through local conversations actually make sure that everyone realizes they have a role to play and how relevant it is to them. So very much with that spirit in mind when you know Leeds has always been at the forefront of this agenda in terms of our environmental commitment and different approaches. But I think all of the um, the activity from young people in particular really focused a lot of minds, um, particularly in cities where the, the, it was incredibly um, visual a demonstration of passion and feeling and concern about what was actually happening. And this led Leeds, for example, to to go out and declare climate emergency fair, fairly quickly. Um, and the approach that we took was a recognition that no one institution, no one area of policy can actually deliver this on its own. And the, the real strength for me of tackling this at a local level is the ability in local areas, local communities to bring those really rich and valuable um, partnerships together. So the approach we took in Leeds was to set up at um, the independent Leeds Climate Commission, which is actually co-chaired with Leeds University and really bringing in a, an evidence-based approach. Um, I'm very pleased to say that this is now developed into a Yorkshire-wide climate commission, um, therefore able to bring in the bigger issues and particularly relevant at the moment around energy, around solar, 
battery production. Um, I was speaking in the House of Lords yesterday about aviation emissions. These are huge issues that we need to scale up, but we, we need to be rooted back into our local communities. And the Leeds Climate Commission has actually um, um, delivered a template that has been replicated across the country. But the thing I want to stress is that we're not going to be able to achieve what we need to unless we take the public with us. And the language often is exclusive, um, not particularly relevant to people whose lives are so stretched at the moment. And we need to together find that narrative and language that is a real motivator. So we, you know, obviously we're talking about carbon, but actually we need to translate that into conversations about fuel poverty, about health inequalities, um, and, and really making sure that there is a relevance there to people's lives and making switching that balance. So it's the public that are demanding that action is taken because recognising and understanding the impact of not um, doing anything is actually happening on their families and on their lives and changing the narrative from cost to invest to save and just that how important it is to really put that investment in and that's a very real conversation we need to be having with government now that it isn't just about cost but it is about realizing over longer term that the, the payback will be immense so huge amount of um, interest through local authorities like Leeds in how we can translate this into opportunities so jobs boosting the economy skills um, looking at the opportunities, um, it's not just about new build housing, for example, housing stock that is built now will still be being used in the um, 2050s. Um, and unfortunately, some of that housing stock needs an intense amount of work, which could lead to really real opportunities. But um, I'm not convinced at this moment in time that go government really does recognise the value of working at the local level. And I think we need to move forward into those conversations with government that actually empowering us at a local level to do the things that we do well is um, the future. But just hearing rumours coming out as we speak about the spending review and potential more cuts to local authorities really is a very, very depressing backstop because um, to this debate because it absolutely needs to be driven at a local level and I think that that image of like-minded people coming together discussing things that we all already agree with is something that local authorities, local government, local councillors can really help and get out and spread the, um, the necessary messages to make it um, an imperative for everyone to do what they can. However small it is, it makes a huge contribution when added together. I just wanted to ask on, on your point about involving the public at, at the local level and, and, and really engaging with them. With them. How, how did you go about doing that? Did you use some of these sort of methods that we hear about, like citizens assemblies and things like that? Or is it just part of the kind of regular process of being a good councillor and, you know, being being engaged with your local community? No, no, a really crucial point. So through the Leeds Climate Commission, we set up a Leeds a Citizens jury just to look at the climate um, um, issues based on work that we'd done actually on transport in the city and trying to understand what would help people change um, their, their modal shift and and it is in, it's so empowering when you actually give the trust to people who fairly really randomly selected 
but really go down into the drill down into the detail of what's involved um, and the sort of practical response that you get from that process of what will work and what will be acceptable is in my view absolutely invaluable and you know government needs to trust local authorities in whatever guise they are but local authorities also need to trust more the public and the people who live within their particular administrative areas and I think if we can really develop that sense of trust on a, a very clear set of, um, of of goals that everyone has signed up to then then you start to make the difference uh, and I think the the Leeds Climate Commission that you mentioned is quite an interesting model for other cities thinking about this can you tell us a bit more about how it worked? Was it quite like the relationship between the CCC and the government? Did it sort of publish independent advice and then you as decision makers had to choose whether to accept that or was it a bit more sort of in internal to your thinking? Yeah, well, so so the council, for example, is very, very much involved. So it's sort of hand in glove development. But of course, to 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 work, there has to be that independence and that element of challenge um, based on the evidence that's um, that's gathered. But it really mainly is a consensual model, if I'm honest, and, and I think that's where its strength really lies. But there is a lot of challenge there and, and a lot of um, interest generated from very, very local issues. Um, often, for example, planning applications will trigger an enormous debate in a local area. And I think planning in particular is one of the areas that government needs to listen more to um, local voices in terms of what sustainable communities actually are and and if if the proposals coming forward aren't sustainable then why are local authorities put in a position where too often their concern comes down to being taken over you know decisions being overturned at appeal with huge financial consequences for the local authorities in question so I think that's a very rich area that we could come together and um, work out a consensus of how we can work better. Um, I think there is an opportunity in the planning debate nationally to really start to have more of an influence. OK, um, Hayley, you've got this really interesting role as co-chair of uh, Newcastle's Net Zero Task Force, as well as having lots of experience sort of thinking about this issue in academia. Obviously, we've heard a bit about what's happening in Leeds. Newcastle's, you know, sort of similar in some ways, but quite a different economy and, you know, sort of different things going on. Can you tell us a bit about that process of helping to shape Newcastle's plan for decarbonisation? Yeah, thank you. Um, just firstly to say I'm delighted to be here today. Um, and as someone who's worked in climate science for about 20 years now, I can only stress the urgency and the importance of actually action in this space um, to reach net zero targets. But, but thinking about doing this now rather than in 10 or 20 years time. And I really do hope that something really concrete comes out of COP26 this year. Um, I'd like to pick up I suppose on something that Baroness Blake said um, to start with, I think that a lot of the action around this space um, is happening at the city scale at the moment. Um, the Newcastle Net Zero Task Force is, is a great example of this, but actually there's similar um, schemes happening obviously in Leeds and other cities um, around the country. And it's been really um, great to hear about more of these through the COP26 universities network that I'm part of. Um, we, we 
I suppose three major players in the city, um, the Newcastle City Council, Newcastle University and the NHS Trust all declared climate emergencies in uh, spring 2019. Um, and we came together to form something called the uh, Climate Convention within the city. So this is very similar to what Baroness Blake's just been talking about for Leeds. Um, and that itself contains something called the Net Zero Task Force, um, the Climate Change Committee, which is part of the City Council and uh, the Citizens Assembly. So we're trying to include the public in this decision making process as well, or this planning process, I suppose. Um, and the nice thing about um, this uh, net zero task force really is that um, there has been, I suppose, very little debate about the need for action. So um, we've engaged across the two universities, the NHS Trust, the City Council, um, all of the major carbon emitters within the city. So the commercial sector, um, transport operators, even the airport, um, for example, um, and things like, um, you know, the council housing um, and, and, and other things um, and and I suppose some of the more NGOs as well um, and really um, the debate at the beginning was about what um, emissions we should be including and we decided to in the first place uh, concentrate sim simply on scope one and scope two emissions and to to ignore for the moment consumption emissions um, from outside the city and uh, transport um, emissions coming into the city, um, but we're, we'll consider those later. And I think everybody has been agreed about, as I say, the need for action. Um, one thing we have um, really been thinking about is, is how we start to implement, how do we prioritise, I suppose, where to act first? Um, very much, how do we get the funding together? Um, some of this comes through private partnerships, um, some of it comes from the public purse. Um, and how do we actually um, almost uh, there's, there's certain types of national legislation that really stop us or hinder us from actually uh, making actions at local uh, scales. And, and, and to give an example of that, so we've got something called a low carbon construction um, code that we've developed. Um, and so that's a voluntary system for uh, construction of new builds. Um, in a low carbon way. Now that's something that really should be coming from central government as legislation, but obviously isn't there at the moment. Um, there's, there's all sorts of other progress being made around um, district heating schemes. Um, for example, um, we've, we've obtained funding to put in pilot schemes for things like um, heat pumps, um, for, for um, increased um, electric uh, vehicle charging points around the city. Um, but all of these things at the moment are very much at a pilot scale. So um, concentrating on sort of low carbon transport options, um, reducing domestic heating carbon emissions and very much uh, carbon offsetting through things like um, applying to treescape schemes, et cetera, et cetera. I think that what needs to happen is, is exactly what Baroness Blake was just talking about in terms of, um, I suppose, national government stepping up, um, really thinking about how do we fund these actions that are already happening at local scales? Because I think that's that's fundamentally where, where these things actually have to happen. Um, and to bring people along, it needs to happen at local scales. Um, again, we've, we've upscaled the sort of city scale stuff now to the regional scale. We're thinking about net zero strategies at a northeast um, scale. Um, and this will continue to evolve, I think. So it, it needs now to be integrated very much more with what's happening at 
at national scales with the and I know that the net zero um, research and innovation strategy is coming out <laughs> very soon so I hear um, so it will be interesting to see how all of this can integrate together to, to help us make more progress in this area and particularly in light of our leadership of COP26 this year. Hayley, thank you and, and really interesting setting us up there on the, the relationship between central and local, which I know we're going to come back to. Just wanted to ask you briefly about one point you mentioned there, which I thought was really interesting about on emissions and your decision to sort of initially include scope one and scope two in, in your net zero plan. Because we've seen quite a lot of criticism about cities, local areas setting targets and it not being particularly clear about exactly what emissions are included, what's being counted, how it's being counted and so on. Do you think we need a kind of clear bit of guidance almost from central government which says, you know, this is this is the approach you should take, you should start off with these emissions or something like that to have a consistent approach across the country? Um, yeah, perhaps. I mean, I think, I mean, obviously we don't, we don't include consumption emissions in the national targets either. Um, so that's that's some, somewhat of an emission at the moment. And if we look at, I mean, I could go on forever in this space, but, you know, if we look at our actual reductions we've made in terms of carbon uh, consumption, I suppose, or, you know, emissions um, in the UK, including consumption emissions at the national scale, um, it really blows the uh, emission savings we've made away. You know, we haven't made anywhere near as significant emission savings in the last uh, 20 years or so if we look at those. So we've we've exported our manufacturing overseas, essentially. I think that some um, level of advice from government would be very useful, um, but more so it would be um, advice on um, some specific, I suppose, metrics that can be used to measure carbon emissions. You know, so what what should we actually be measuring? Um, and and a, a sort of strategy for this. And I mean, this is not just for the net zero space, but for the adaptation space as well, which we've not talked about at all, but is absolutely crucial to join up to net zero, thinking about maladaptation. You know, when we're, when we're making these huge new investments in um, retrofitting houses or new transport networks, for example, we have the opportunity and we must take that opportunity to actually think about adaptation to uh, increasing extreme events as well. Because um, because otherwise, you know, um, we, we will end up being maladapted um, and having to do it again. OK, brilliant. Steve, going to come to you now. Um, I wonder what you at the Connected Cities Catapult see as the biggest opportunities here and in particularly on transport. You know, we talk a lot about active travel, low carbon transport and, and sort of drawing on your experience in Manchester. Where do you see the big opportunities? Well, thank you very much, Tom. And, you know, the opportunity to talk in this panel at this point in time where we are is, is really is really much appreciated. I think there are three things, if I may, I wanted to say. <clears throat> one, is, one is very obvious, of course which is that cities face multiple and complex challenges. You know, the battle for climate change will be won and lost on, on the streets of cities. It, it really will. We, we already know that 50% of the global population live in cities in, in, in the Western Europe. It's, it's up to 75% cities in the UK, which presents the benefits of density and agglomeration, of course. You know, when we start to think about investing in our infrastructure assets, in our transport systems, in retrofit, we can do that a lot more easily and at scale. Uh, in our cities than, than, than more dispersed economies. But of course, in our cities, you know, particularly in the UK, those assets, be they, you know, infrastructure or buildings are operated, maintained, managed by a whole range of different entities. 
which makes it incredibly challenging to do that in a very strategic joined up way, which again, the burden of that often falls on, you know, jobs that Christopher and Judith have done in the past in, in local government. The second point, you know, comes to sort of the opportunities, I guess. So, you know, I don't think we've done enough, certainly in the UK, in terms of articulating the impacts and benefit of, of net zero from an economic and social perspective. Yes, we have the, with the work that Nick Stern did nearly over a decade ago now in terms of op, op, articulating the economic country. We haven't really revisited that in any shape or form. Individual cities have done their own mini Sterns, but I think there's, there's a real need to revisit that in terms of the opportunities that the green industry, whatever that may be, in terms of jobs and growth presents, as well as let's not forget the opportunities in the UK as a science superpower around R&D. Uh, and of course, in, in the social aspect as well, you know, wellness, both physical and mental well-being, the opportunities to really combat and address fuel poverty through large scale retrofit in some of our cities will have significant benefits, both physically and mentally, to some of our more deprived communities. Uh, and then we've seen in the last 18 months, of course, the real benefits, huge benefits of green space in our cities and access to quality green space that that provides. And it's not it's not it's not you know unusual really is it that those cities internationally that are in the vanguard of of, of working towards net zero places like Copenhagen are regularly in those top ten of most livable cities indices that we see on an annual basis. Um, you know, and the emergence, I guess, of the, the, the fifteen minute neighbourhood, fifteen minute city, Brazilian concept as well in the last eighteen months, I think also presents an opportunity in terms of harnessing some of those opportunities. The, the third point, um, Tom, I may, may say, which I've not heard much yet, is that is really around the major obstacle we've seen is around access to development finance. We know that in that, you know, we talk, we talked to a lot of the, the capital markets, there is enough finance in, in the capital markets to want to fund this stuff. But what is absolutely lacking is the ability to develop projects to a bankable proposition and who is actually going to pay for that which is why earlier this year july the first we launched the uk cities climate investment commission a partnership between ourselves at the connected places catapult core cities in london which brought together the 12 largest cities and the investment community the work we did which we're going to launch on october the 21st and that's not a plug but you're very welcome to come along and listen to that event is that you know we identified a 206 billion investment opportunity or bill, depending on where you're looking at, in terms of the low carbon technologies of those cities, the investments that they need to achieve net zero. That figure is way beyond the public purse. It's going to absolutely have to have significant private sector investment. But to do that, there needs to be a mechanism by which development finance is brought forward such that the right projects are brought forward for, for, for private sector finance to flow. And at the minute, there isn't that mechanism to do so. There's absolutely no way the local government has got the capacity or capability to do that. What we're doing at UKCCIC is we do have a proposal on the board uh, to set how, how we would structure that. And perhaps I'll come on to that at a later point. But uh, I'm hoping that that sort of presents some of the opportunities, but also, I guess, some of the challenges um, faced. No. Really useful, Steve, and thanks for um, the sort of impassioned uh, argument about the opportunities. I think that's a really important case to be made. And you're completely right that there has been somewhat silence since Stern from the Treasury, although we do wait to see what's in the Net Zero Review when that gets published. Just um, sticking on the finance point you, you finished with at the end there, um, what are you looking for in terms of that mechanism for, for bringing forward private finance? Is, is there sort of things that could be agreed at the COP? Because the other part of this as well is 
the role of public investment in sort of crowding in private investment. We've seen the UK Infrastructure Bank not given a net zero remit, but you know some some funding becoming available. We've seen the Treasury starting to mess around with sort of green jilts and, and, and things like that. Um, what, what do you think is needed? So it, it is it is first and foremost about development finance, uh, Tom. It really it really fundamentally under are you those of you aware the 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 um, the IB had a program some years ago, it's still running, the Elena program, which allowed cities, and number of UK cities access, access this, fi development finance to do two things. One is to be able to create buckets of um, accessibility around the, the technical assistance that is required, for example, a heat network. How do you do the engineering, the numbers, et cetera, to turn that into, in, into something that will work technically? And the second, third bucket was around financial assistance. So how do you then take that project which will work from a, an engineering perspective into a bankable proposition. What we're adding to that is another bucket which is around the ability to identify the right projects because I said you know they, we, this was all, some stuff was done in Manchester 10 years ago and Leeds and, and Southampton um, but the ability for local authorities to actually identify the right sort of projects that you can then do those other two buckets too will I think put you in, in, in a, in a in a good strong position to do that work and, and achieve that that transition um, and I think that's got to be public sector money um, I, I think there's enough capital from the private sector markets to then to you know invest in the capital infrastructure that's required but what they're not willing to do uh, at the minute is perhaps fund some of that development work um, what, some of the work we've been doing uh, again which is what we'll launch on the 21st is if you like a blended model that looks at how do you create um, net zero districts that use across five different asset classes. Don't just focus on renewables, which where we know the dividends are pretty relatively risk free, they're pretty certain. But how do you perhaps do some cross financing from them into more of the challenging assets around residential retrofit? Otherwise, you're left with those really tough assets to tackle further down the track. So doing a blended approach around assets, but also cross financing to support some of the more challenging areas. Brilliant, thank you. Uh, I'm going to turn, turn to audience questions now. We've got a lot coming in. Um, first one here from Anonymous, um, who asks, how do we ensure a consistent approach uh, slash infrastructure if we are devolving more to cities. Uh, Christopher, I might come to you first on, on this one. So clearly, you know, it's quite a strong argument that we've heard today for, you know, giving cities more power over this, but it does raise that challenge of consistency and how you actually manage that across the country. What do you think on that one? Uh, it's, a, it's a really good challenge. Uh, and, you know, going back to my earlier point about the funding, when it's so hodgepodge, uh, it's quite difficult to get that consistency and that certainty. Um, it's difficult to get consistency when government departments don't seem to be very consistent in what they are pushing and that there is no single net zero message that's coming from government to local authorities for them to be able to have that kind of wraparound so that they can get on and deliver. So a lot of local authorities, a lot of cities are doing their own plans, focusing on their own emissions and also where they can shape that sense of place. So if you think about government departments like Bayes, you know, they'll focus on things like energy and fuel poverty, whereas the department formerly known as MHCLG focused on house building rather than kind of supporting the energy efficiency of home and the energy systems in the future. You then chuck the treasury into the mix um, and you've get, got a very complicated system where 
you're not always getting alignment between those departments. So it it's a challenge to get local authorities to get that consistency against the, uh, across the country when we're not getting that consistency from government departments and all moving and pushing together with a single net zero message and framework, which we're, we're absolutely crying out for. Um, going back to an earlier comment about um, a met, sort of the consistency of get government message, the Welsh government has actually got this on reporting. So their message to local authorities in Wales um, is very much about what should be reported on and how they should be reporting. So it can be done. It is difficult. Um, you know, trying to compare apples and oranges uh, is always a challenge, you know, just to agree on getting the right fruit, I think, uh, in some cities. But it can be done. There should be some clear guidance some clear messaging because local authorities and cities are going to be the big delivery arms, um, as Steve was talking about. I'll come to Baroness Blake and then Haley on this question. But Baroness Blake, I, I suppose, you know, we're, we're hoping to see this net zero strategy come out from, from central government in the coming weeks. And some of that confusion that Christopher's talking about, we're hoping that that will be addressed there. I mean, do you agree with this point that actually it's quite difficult for local authorities across the country to work out what a sort of consistent long term approach would be when you get such a sort of black box in terms of central government's thinking? I, I think the, um, the 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 issue of devolution in this area is abs absolutely goes to the core of what we're talking about, and it and it and it picks up the whole issue of the lack of trust um, uh, that has developed in this country, and there's the, the seemingly more and more grip from central government over these areas, and and just that um, backdrop, as Christopher said, of local authorities having to compete for funds, particularly in this space, has really got to change and has to move on. And there has to be um, a, um, a real effort to get the, make sure that there's very clear guiding principles in terms of what needs to be done, but a real understanding that this, it, it will, there will be different approaches from different areas based on local need and the local circumstances. And it's not as though, we haven't got examples from certainly from a, um, immediately from our neighbours in Europe about how this is managed at, at, at a more federal level. So let's look at the examples where it works, where there is a real understanding and expectation of what needs to be done, but a realisation that the energy needs to be going into creative ways to allow it to happen rather than that awful process of applying for funding and then at the right at the 11th hour realizing that you're not going to get it and you're back to the drawing board again and there just needs to be more understanding of how debilitating that is and how dysfunctional as a result um, our, the ability to roll out the programs at scale um, have become and, and, and I do hope that the review does address these issues and gives us more of the understanding of how this is going to be and of course the other issue around this is um is that is the the vexed issue of um, the fact that some of this work is going to be longer term and certainly longer term than the lifespan of a particular government and we need to address that and take it forward yeah um Hayley I bring you in on this uh, any reflections on, on what you've heard there but I wonder if I could sort of throw in a, a related question I suppose which is this relationship between these two agendas from the government, levelling up on the one hand, net zero on the other. Clearly, there's quite a lot of overlaps. Um, but do you think that that sort of connection between them has been sufficiently articulated? 
Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think probably not. I mean, I, I think I agree with Baroness Blake around the, the last question um, that I think that there needs to be local approaches actually to, to net zero, that different cities will have different um, methods perhaps, um, but, but that, that consistency um, needs to come from, I mean, perhaps it's, it's, a, it's, it's having that trust and having that feedback between the local authorities and and the government in terms of um, actions that can be taken at the local scale and the plans you know there's there's pretty detailed plans actually certainly for Newcastle that have been made but of course the funding's not there to actually implement those plans and it's I'm sure that the same is the case for Leeds um, and other cities and it's feeding back and talking to each other and and working out what those um, common threads are that actually national government should be should be taking the steps, you know, to inform the steps national government should be taking in terms of new legislation, financing. I, I agree for the need for the private sector as well. I mean, in, so second question, I mean, levelling up um, and uh, net zero. Um, I think one of one of the issues at the moment is that, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it absolutely needs to be connected, um, that um, we need to use the opportunity for, for, for I suppose, change to actually um, the, the net zero investments that are going to be made into, for example, domestic properties, etc. Give us a give us a huge opportunity for for levelling up, actually, um, and particularly in the northeast, you know, which is a, a very deprived area um, and contains lots of um, very deprived parts and lots of very low income communities. Um, I think in terms of, you know, biodiversity targets, green space, tree planting, that kind of thing, um, improving those type of aspects um, through this agenda, but also, um, you know, green skills, you know, new, the green economy, bringing in new skills, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's thinking about how you, how you make those investments um, and, um, well, I mean, we're thinking about this at the university as well in terms of um, implementing um, some of these green skills training with local companies, etc. Um, but it needs to go beyond these kind of very small pilot studies locally um, and really be thought about at, at that national government scale. So I'd kind of, I suppose, like to see action rather than just rhetoric in this space. Yeah, no, really interesting. And some interesting work coming out on the potential for sort of the leveling up agenda you know if you look at some northern cities where actually improving local public transport connections mm -hmm. could have the, the greatest impact and so on and so forth um steve i wanted to bring in another question now which i think you might be um well placed to tackle on on suvs um so the questioner asks sort of how do we tackle the rapidly growing number of suvs on the roads in our cities which are entirely unsuitable vehicles for urban use and causing enormous damage in terms of heating and air pollution, not to mention road safety. I'm not going. <coughs> I'm not going to necessarily best place to answer that, but I'll have a I'll have a go at it. <coughs> so look, I think there's a carrot and stick approach, isn't there, to sort of transport in in, in all of our urban environments. You know, it, it's no good penalising a motorist if there isn't a, if there isn't a better offer on, on on the road, so to speak. And that's about investment in, in different modes of public transport. It's about opportunities to move around uh, locally on, on bike or by foot. 
It's about, uh, you know, we've seen the emergence of the, the 50 minute neighborhood in the last 80 months as a really interesting proposition. Uh, and, and so it's it's about a whole range of things, I think. So there's got to be, yes, there is. there are vehicles that are more polluting than others. Of course there are, we recognize that. Um, but there needs to be a carrot and stick approach, I think, I think to a lot of this. Um, I, I think we, we surely have learned that just simply taking a stick to the motorist, and, and I, 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 I don't own a car, um, taking a stick to a motorist is not really going to bring the, the communities on board, which Judith and Christopher have all talked about. You know, we've got, we've got to be smarter and cleverer than that, I think. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's, it's a blended approach and a blended mechanism, but investment in, in quality public transport, in quality cycling and, and, and space and infrastructure has got to be part of that, that, that mix. Um, can I just make a comment on the levelling up agenda, if I may? Because yeah. we're trying to tie a lot of this stuff to levelling up. We've got to be aware that in, if we're going to achieve this, it's got to be UK wide. You know, this has got to be a net. This has got to be a, a net zero transition in London, in Bristol, in Southampton, in Exeter, in Plymouth. All of those cities have got to be part of that piece. <clears throat> so that's just a comment I was uh, like to add to that little element of the discussion for me. Okay, thanks. Um, and a question now. I'd like to come to Baroness Blake and, and Christopher on as the kind of um, uh, those with political experience on our on our panel, but I'd welcome thoughts on the the previous question on SUVs as well. But the, the next question is on how to prevent a small but vocal minority of those who pr oppose progressive measures to get to net zero and the question is thinking of cycle lanes road closures low traffic neighborhoods that sort of thing They're saying how do you prevent that small minority from drowning out the quiet majority who actively support or are not opposed to such measures there's a bit of an assumption that that's that is indeed the way that's balanced but baroness blake i might come to you on that i mean did you find different segments of your population in leeds were responding quite differently to some of your proposals <coughs> Um, I think if you if you talk to local councillors at the moment, this is one of the really difficult areas that they're facing. Um, and it, it, you know, we, without being alarmist, it can become very serious and the threats that local political representatives are getting is really deeply troubling. And there is a, a real issue of safety. And, and actually, I do want to pick up on the issue of safety with regard to the previous question. Because we can have the best transport systems <clears throat> in the world, um, but if if parts of um, our communities don't feel safe walking back from the bus stop to their house, then the obvious solution for them is to keep using a private car to get them home safely. So I think this is an, a real example of how there needs to be real, um, you know, cross-cutting discussions about what will work for people, and 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 it's it isn't. You know, I think sometimes the transport debate has been too focused on the type of model, the type of scheme, the shiny, fast um, train, whatever it is. But actually, we have to. That's why working with the public is so important and understanding the barriers and what the real challenges are and why people who would love to be able to cycle and walk actually find that it's not. Um, it's not um, appropriate for them and, and just basic things like being able to cross the road safely as well, which is a massive issue for anyone, for example, with a disability and you find that the bus stops are in, in the middle of um, a stretch of highway that doesn't have any crossings to connect them and, and all of those those issues. <coughs> but um, unfortunately, those um, those minorities that you've mentioned can have a hugely disproportionate impact on um, policy and decision making 
and um, some of those um, views do become amplified within the social media space. So it does appear that there is a massive um, opposition to a particular scheme, for example, was actually on the ground. Those that, that are in favour of it are keeping quiet. So again, it's the I think it goes down to the quality of the local engagement. They um, and, and really painstaking um, need for going out and and um, consulting, advising, informing as to what the, the 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 schemes coming forward actually involve and what they will mean to people. I think sometimes there is an assumption that 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 will be understood, whereas actually there, there is an element of um, fear and that can be exploited, as we've seen unfortunately in too many schemes. Mm. Just before coming to Christopher, I wanted to bring in actually we've had a couple of questions on the role of education, which I think relates to, to what you're talking about, Baroness Blake. So so one is around, you know, if we <coughs> make everyone realise they have a role to play, what are the implications of this for public slash community education against the backdrop of massive cuts to adult education? Um, and we've also got a question from uh, Singh who asks about um, a green curriculum for young people and whether we need to be sort of thinking about through the National Skills Fund um, and so on, actually making more courses available to young people. Is that, Baroness Blake, would you sort of see that as having quite an important role? Yes, I, I think in many, many um, schools in particular across the country, they, we have very enlightened teachers who are really picking up on the fact that young young people have been driving this agenda so forcibly over the last um, the last few years and really making sure that they're, 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 they have the information. So I think that that I would certainly um, see that that would should be something that is recognised and that schools can then use to contribute to, um, you know, that unfortunately we, we our education system is obsessed with um, with results and we have to make sure that it, it through the curriculum that it, it you know schools can be measured on the success of how they're tackling this agenda i think that's a really important point but yes our education in its widest context is is so crucial and unfortunately we've got to a situation in this country and anyone who stands for political office and goes out and knocks on doors um realizes very very quickly that the vast majority of people don't have a um, an understanding of which parts of government are responsible for which um, areas, and so um, you know I I would go out as, as standing for the local authority and get get blamed for um, certain things that were happening at a national level, and I would just say I wish I had responsibility for um, being able to make sure the buses turned up on time, for example, um, and it's getting across that real understanding, and I think there needs to be. Um, a program and if and if we can't do it through the traditional channels then we have to find um ways that we can make sure that the messages are um communicated and the opportunities created for that engagement christopher i wonder if i could bring you in on, on those questions you know about how you bring perhaps drawing on your experience as a, a a leader of southampton city council how you sort of bring a whole community with you and sort of avoid those those divisions um well if anyone has the answer, let me know. Uh, but <laughs> the, um, uh, you know, I think the, the children really are the best advocates. I think some of the best conversations we had about uh, moving towards net zero and the future of what Southampton should look like and our city was held in our schools. Um, and they would then learn about all of these kind of really tricky issues 
and then they would lobby their parents. So we would see really great modal shift from people dropping off their children at school, moving from dropping them off in the car to walking, scooting, cycling, because their children had said, we want to get to school in a different way because of the environment. And people who would be engaging in our consultations for our Green City Charter would say, my children have told me to put in my view about why we need to do these things, why we need to see these changes. So absolutely, I think, you know, what's happening in schools already, they're very alive to this. They're having these discussions, which, you know, we should encourage and foster. Um, local politicians are probably the most accountable politicians that we have in the country, and they are really alive to the views of their communities. And, you know, as Judith was saying, in the social media age, those that turn up and speak out are listened to. And it is really difficult when there is a lot of anger and hatred that's whipped up on social media channels. Uh, and then politicians are getting it. I had many a time some of my backbench councils say, why are we doing all this difficult stuff on climate change? Can't we just do the stuff that everyone likes? Because it's it's just easier, isn't it? Can't we just plant trees or do the nice stuff? Why have we got to change the road network and put everybody out and cause all this all this anger and upset? And you know, these are the tricky things that we're going to have to do. There's a reason the government's focused on switching energy generation because we're getting the same energy from the plugs that we got 20 years ago, but it's a lot cleaner now than it was. But it's not impacted people. So we do need to think about how we are engaging people and how we empower the silent majority. So many people have come to me now and said, why has this cycle lane been taken out or why has this thing changed? You know, why have we gone back on pedestrianisation? Because the vocal minority have been listened to and the silent majority haven't expressed their view. So we need to really change the terms of the debate where if we're seeing changes that we want to see and we believe in in the cities, that you don't just quietly agree with it and think it's great, that the public speak out in support because the consultations that councils run, the engagement with local politicians really does matter. So that, that's a really important thing. We can't just sit back and hope the councils do the right thing. We've got to support them and we've got to support bold decisions. In a lot of uh, city centres, you know, we had big pedestrianisation programmes 20 years ago you know, where we closed off the main high streets and made them really nice livable environments. I can't see how we'll do that again today, even though we need to, because of the animosity and the anger and the threats that we're getting on things on social media. And most local politicians don't do these jobs full time. They've got other jobs because being a councillor isn't a well-paid position, dare I say it. Um, you know, you get a basic allowance um, and you get no employment protection. So most people have to, through need, keep on other roles and other jobs. So it's, you know, you've got a diluted focus and then if you'll get the disproportionate impact of people being very aggressive, very angry, uh, death threats, you name it on social media, it does push back the quality and the terms of the debate. Mm. And Hayley, I just wanted to, to bring you in quickly on that before coming to a, a final question for the whole panel. Um, I mean, has, has have parts of elements of Newcastle's strategy been been sort of controversial and, and what sort of approaches have have you taken in the city to sort of engaging with different communities on that? Um, I, I, I'd first like to just say that um, I think climate education is absolutely crucial. Um, I think that climate change is without doubt the biggest challenge that young people will face in their lifetimes. Um, and it's shocking how little 
is in the national curriculum and what little there is is so out of date as to be unbelievable um, we still talk about the you know the advantages and the benefits of global warming alongside the disadvantages um, it's it's quite shocking what's in there um, I think that that you know key to, to to getting people on board and making changes is to embed this this education throughout um, the national curriculum but also throughout um, education in higher in, in education institutions um, and we've got a briefing paper coming out from the COP26 universities network tomorrow I believe on mainstreaming climate education in higher education institutions and that does say something about schools as well. Uh, in terms of what we've done at, in Newcastle um, very much a similar approach to to what Baroness Blake was was saying for Leeds. Um, we've we've engaged very much with um, the community through citizen um, panels. Um, I, I think that that when you get these people and they they are very vocal, some people um, and have very differing opinions at, at uh, the beginning of the process. But I think getting people in the same room and actually talking to each other helps people to understand each other's opinions. Um, similarly, we've held youth summits um, as well, um, mock COP26 events for, for students and youth, um, just to kind of bring people on board in terms of the issues and to, to gauge their opinions and to, to include those, um, as I say, in the, in the planning. So I think it's absolutely crucial that we bring people on board. There'll they'll always be differing opinions, um, but I think getting people to talk to each other and not through the, the medium of uh, social media is, is key here. Thanks, Hayley. And we're, we're slightly over time, but I'm going to come to my panel for one last thought on an excellent question from Olivia Bryan, um, who asks, what are the quick wins, if there are any, and how do we create action today? So very much echoing Giles's introduction. Um, so 30 seconds, please, each. Uh, Steve, I'll come to you first. Good question. I'll go back to what I said right at the start. We have to have a, a development finance in, in, uh, instrument in the UK. Very brief, love it. Baroness Blake, come to you next. Oh, that is, these are the hardest questions. I, I, I think uh, a, a real opportunity in terms of um, redrafting re all of the approach to skills and making sure through um, the opportunities that we create through employment that we actually help to get the message out about why this is so critical. It becomes very focused, meaningful, and then there becomes a pride in the community that people can see the impact of the work that they've learned how to do and then going out and actually delivering it. OK, Christopher. Well, it's hard to do one, so I'm going to stretch to do two, but I'll do them really quickly. Um, nature based solutions, universally popular, has a big impact uh, on biodiversity um, and adaptation and mitigation, which is really important, but also retrofit. It's the quiet thing that nobody gets really excited about. Um, it, you know, trying to make insulation sound sexy or energy generation not always really exciting, but it has a really big impact, really good beneficial impact on jobs um, and is the quickest way of bringing down carbon emission of buildings. Um, so it, it's a really important tool. Uh, and Hayley. I think I think um, being involved actually. So if 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 
people are more more happy to be involved and to make um, noise when they see positive action and to basically uh, make noise the opposite, I suppose, negative noise when, when they see um, actions they don't like. Um, that helps to reinforce these positive actions. The other thing I would say is vote. You know, um, if you don't like local or national government, actually vote. Um, vote for the people you think are going to make that change. Um, and the same, the same with you know, financing and uh, all of the investments we have as individuals as well. You know, make those changes to 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 basically bring the action you want. Brilliant. Okay. Well, that's all we've got time for. Um, Thank you very much for those very quick, quick wins at the end. Um, we've got another event on tomorrow on how can the UK make a success of the COP. That's with Allegra Stratton, the Prime Minister's COP advisor, and Emma Howard-Boyd. Uh, it just remains to me for me to say thank you very much um, to Gowling for sponsoring this event. Uh, thank you to you for watching, and thank you to my brilliant panel for their illuminating discussion.